Amen. It's good to see you. You can go ahead and please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 29, or you can flip there, swipe there, tap there in, in your Bible apps as well. But as you're turning there, I wanted to let you know that sign up for the spring Bible studies is open. And you're, some of you have already started signing up. If you were a part of the Colossians Bible study, you got an early registration link. But now you can sign up. It's open. And it's going to spend 10 weeks going through the book of 1 Samuel, both men's and women's groups. Men will be on Monday night, 8 p.m., same time as last semester. It's at Lao Baptist Church, our old warehouse that we used to own. And when, women will be meeting there on Wednesdays, same spot, and then Thursdays at Rebar, Thursday nights in Old Town Tomball. And it's going to be a great study through 1 Samuel, 10 weeks. It's going to begin the second week of February, and you're going to study the first kings of Israel, Saul and David, and their victories and their failures, their triumphs, and, and, their, and their trauma and troubles as well. But most importantly, you're going to study and you're going to meet uh, and be reminded of our great king, why we need King Jesus more than, than anyone else. So you can go ahead and sign up for that on the Church Center app. If you haven't downloaded that app, it's the easiest way to sign up for Stuff at Redeemer. Um, as soon as you download it from either the Apple Store or the Google Play Store, you just search for Redeemer Church and you find us, you sign up, you, you log in, you can manage not only events you sign up for and stuff, but your giving, um, you can see your giving history, you can even set up your profile, put your current family picture up there, your face, all of it you can manage in the Church Center app. So we just want to encourage you to keep using that. But in the next couple of weeks, we'll also have in-person sign up as well. Well, let's dive into the Gospel of Matthew. I just can't wait to hear what God's going to do in 1 Samuel. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do as we look at his word now in Matthew. If you remember where we left off last week was Jesus giving breadcrumbs to a Canaanite woman, right? Did anyone else you know, as we talked about being a house dog in the kingdom of God, did anyone go and adopt a dog last week at the pound? I heard people in the first service were thinking about it. Did anyone else's kids run around the house going, I'm a house dog? <laughs> it's probably just Oliver. He was the only one pretending to be a house dog. And it just reminded me again, as, as I saw, you know, the Beach family that put on Facebook, they were starting to watch Lord of the Rings. It just reminded me when Jesus talks about that crumb, but also about that elvish bread how just a crumb of that bread, just a small bite out of that loaf is enough to sustain them for the day and give them energy and strength. And that's what the picture of grace is. That just a little bit of grace, just a little bit of grace from Jesus, that's just enough to transform our lives and to know that he has plenty of grace for us weary sinners. And that's, that's what we have to remember today, that he has plenty of grace for us weary sinners. And that's what we see in today's passage where we pick up from last week is how really we need to avoid Christian amnesia. It's not a physical condition or a medical one, but it's a spiritual one that leads to all kinds of problems in our lives. And we see it here today in verse 29. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the word of Christ and it'll be on the screen and we'll begin in verse 29. So moving on from there, as he interacted with a Canaanite woman, healed her daughter, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. And they put, they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, and the, the crippled restored, the lame, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. Otherwise, they might collapse on the way. 
The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now, there were 4,000 men who had eaten, besides women and children. We're talking maybe 10,000 people, more. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan, 16.1, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. The disciples reached the other shore and they had forgotten to take bread. Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were discussing among themselves, we didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said, you of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves that you don't have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many large baskets you collected? Why is it that you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven and bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is God's word. You may be seated. Church, the reason I want us to think about avoiding Christian amnesia is that it's a real problem for us, for every Christian, for, for every follower of God. It's a repeated theme in the Old Testament. It doesn't take long as you read in the Old Testament to hear God say to the nation of Israel, remember that I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Even in the Exodus, as they've left Egypt, got out of slavery, they start complaining, remember how good we had it in Egypt? We had melons, we had cucumbers. And Moses is thinking like, you were slaves, You were treated brutally by Pharaoh. You're misremembering how good it was. And we see a glimmer, this is all over the Old Testament. We see a glimmer of it here in 16.5. Look at chapter 16, verse five. I I love this interaction from the disciples. So Jesus, Jesus feeds the massive crowd. There's baskets full, full of bread everywhere. Verse five, the disciples reached to the other shore and what? They had forgotten to take bread. Baskets full, sitting around. They're in a desolate place. And they're probably looking at each other. How could, how could one of us not bring any bread? Any of this? And then Jesus, then what? He tells them, watch out for the bread. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they look at each other. What is he talking about? We don't have any bread. They're, they're, they're totally not on the same plane as Jesus. And Jesus what tells them, 
don't you understand yet? And here it is, don't you remember? There's our themes. They've forgotten, and he tells them, now you don't remember that what I did earlier when I fed 5,000 with even less food, and how I just fed 4,000 plus men with even more food. You guys don't remember. And they probably sat back and thought, oh yeah. See, they have spiritual amnesia. And this is something we have to be aware of too, which is why we talk often about preaching the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself that Christ died for you, is alive for you, that he's forgiven you, that he's for you. Because you are hearing teaching every day through Instagram, through the news, through sports radio, through commercials, through headlines, through ads, through, I mean, we are all bombarded with sermons from every source outside of Sunday. Every day you hear messages on how to handle things, how to think about things, how to process things, what to value. And we've got to remember the truth. And the first thing that I wanna point out for us from today's passage has been a hot button issue, I think for the last maybe 18 to 24 months in American Christianity. And it has to do with mercy ministries and social justice ministries and things in that vein. And here's what I want us to remember before we develop Christian amnesia. We need to remember that physical ministry matters too. Physical ministry matters too. This may seem like a minor point, but I don't think it is. What's happening at the beginning of this passage? Verse 29. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him. What, who, including what? The lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Jesus is healing people left and right, one after the other. They're just bringing them, putting them at his feet, and he's healing them all. So you got to picture this scene. This is why they says that they're, they're lame or walking, the blind are seeing, and they gave glory to God. So you got to picture this. Paralyzed kids are now playing hide and seek. The, the diseased are now full of energy and, and hope. The demon-possessed are now smiling and laughing. The blind are now enjoying the faces and smiles of their family and friends. This is not a minor point. Why? Because this is what the Messiah King came to do. The prophets told us that when the Messiah would touch his feet down on Israel, the aftershocks of his mercy would spread throughout the nation. And that's what we're seeing. The aftershocks of Jesus touching down on Israel and people being healed, people being restored, their lives being changed physically. See, there's aspects of American Christianity that are really unhealthy and, and, and can lead to all kinds of dangers. One of them is that we kind of pick and choose our favorite part of Jesus. The, uh, the charismatic tradition, they love to focus on Jesus as miracle worker, Jesus as healer. The kind of, uh, the churches like ours that we really focus on Bible teaching, we really value Bible teaching, Bible churches, reformed churches, we like to focus on Jesus as teacher. And, and so there's all kinds of, and maybe the more liberal, maybe more progressive kinds of people that label themselves as Christians, they'll like to focus on Jesus as social worker. All the, there's all kinds of things that we like to pick and choose about Jesus as though Jesus is some kind of app store that I want this part of Jesus, I want to download this part of Jesus, this part. 
what passages like this and what the whole gospels remind us is that we cannot just pick and choose the parts of Jesus we like. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is not just a a healer. And Jesus is not just some kind of social activist. Jesus is a full-orbed Messiah, a full-orbed king who is a healer, who is a teacher, and who is a Lord, and who is the Savior. And look at what happens next in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples after healing all these people, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Because they've stayed with me for three days. They have nothing to eat, and I don't want to send them away hungry Otherwise, they might collapse on the way. Front and center, Jesus has compassion on the people because they're hungry. They've been with him for three days and he doesn't want to send them back home on a journey back home without filling their bellies. He just tells his disciples, guys, we can't send them away. We gotta feed them. They're gonna pass out on the way home. This comes from where? Jesus' compassion, 32. You underline that, his compassion and this, here's where I'm going with all this. Sometimes in a, in a church like ours, with people like us, we can think ministry is only spiritual stuff. Only, quote, spiritual stuff. Teaching people how to study the Bible. Teaching people how to pray. Showing people how to teach their kids about God. Marriage counseling relationship advice and and on and how to handle your anxieties, all kinds of like spiritual things. We can default towards spiritual things and act like physical needs and the physical world isn't a huge deal. And you'll hear popular preachers, and I've heard them say things like, we just need to preach the gospel. That's just not true. That is just not true. Does Jesus just preach the gospel? Uh Uh-uh. He is healing thousands of people. He is feeding thousands of people, stadiums of people. He is filling them. Why? Because this is what the Messiah does. So beloved, real Christ-like ministry doesn't pit spiritual and physical needs against each other. True spirituality includes physicality too. And here's why. Here's how I know. If you're even like, ah, I don't know, maybe that's just unique to Jesus. He doesn't really care about physical. If Jesus did not care about physical stuff, he would not raise us from the dead at the end of the age. Jesus rising from the dead himself and promising to rise us from the dead and not leave us as spirits just floating around in heaven shows that Jesus loves the physical world too. And Jesus wants to redeem everything in this universe. That's why he says, not I'm making all some, I'm making some things new. I'm making spiritual things new, but I am making all things new. As Philippians says, he is Lord of heaven and earth, of things above the earth and on the earth and under the earth, because Jesus is Lord of all. He cares about all of you and all of you, head to toe. He meets the physical needs of people. He cares about spiritual you and physical you. And sometimes churches like ours can think if a Bible's not open, then ministry's not happening. Don't don't think that way. Meeting the physical needs of people, it can be Christ-like. We just see it right here. 
clothing, feeding, doing dental work in Honduras, funding an orphanage in, the, in South America, helping refugees at Abba's house here in Cyprus, teaching a, a, a refugee single mom how to use an American kitchen as she learns an American kitchen. That can be Christ-like. Providing ultrasounds for women who are in distress in, in Tombaugh at the, the pregnancy center. This is all physical ministry that Jesus loves. So remember, it seems so obvious, but like that commercial where the, the birds fly into the door because it's so clean. Like it's a door, it's so obvious, but it's so, sometimes stuff is so obvious to us, we just miss it. Remember, physical ministry matters too. We minister to the whole person and Jesus cares about it all and we do it because we know, second thing to remember is that Jesus works wonders. Jesus works wonders. So what does he do? Well, Matthew tells us 4,000 men we know, besides women and children, it says, this could be upwards of 10,000, 15,000. We have no idea. This is a huge number of, of people. And Mark, in his parallel account, he tells us that this is in a Gentile area, not a predominantly Jewish area. So Jesus has already done this with 5,000 plus in a Jewish area. Now he's gonna do it for the Gentiles, the non-Jews in their area. In verse 33, look what happens. So after he makes known his compassion, he makes known the ministry he wants to do. I want to meet their physical needs. I want to feed these people. I don't want them to collapse on the way. 33, the disciples said to him, where can we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? Is this what we would have hoped the disciples would have said? No, not at all. He's done this before. Just a few chapters ago, he fed 5,000 plus with even less food. More people, less food. That was harder. This is a little easier. It's like Jesus, you know those, I want you to think about the beach balls, not the ones that are about like yay big. I want you like the ones, they're huge beach balls. It, this, this situation right now is like Jesus put this giant beach ball on a golf tee for them, handed them a Nerf bat and says, I'd love to feed these people. What could we do? And the disciples are like, uh, I don't know. Nothing. And Jesus is like, you missed it. You missed the beach ball on the golf tee. This is what should have happened. They should have said, Lord, you've done this before. You've, you can feed all these people. It's, you, this is so easy to you. We have even more bread and we have more fish when you did the 5,000 plus. Okay, well, last time, uh, Peter, do you remember? Yeah, he told, us, he told us, put them in groups. Let's put them in groups. We'll feed them. You, you contort reality. You do your thing. We won't watch. You do it. And then we'll, we'll pass out the food. But that's not what happens. They've already forgotten. And some scholars note, in their response, the disciples' response to Jesus, there is no sign of respect given. They don't say, Lord, how could we do this? They don't even say, Rabbi or teacher, how could we do this? Like they normally speak to Jesus in situations like this. They may be a little frustrated with Jesus. Short, disrespectful. The language feels a little gimme a break-ish. We're in the middle of nowhere, Jesus. What are we gonna do? Well, we know because we've read the story. It's all gonna come from the power of Jesus. And he takes this little bit of food and he does contort reality. He does maximize something that seems to be so minimal and he feeds everyone with baskets left over. 
But before we laugh too hard at the disciples, can we admire them for a second? Which seems odd to say, well, how would we admire them? Let's, let's think about it. Who wrote this story? Matthew. Who left this story? Who could have not put this story in? You know what I'm leaving out? I'm leaving the thing about us forgetting. I'm gonna tell different cool stories about Jesus. No, they put it in there. And it's not just here, it's also in Mark. So who told Mark that story? Mark wasn't there. Mark was not an eyewitness. Peter told him. Who told Luke that story? Luke's not an eyewitness. The disciples told Luke this story. They include the low points of their walk with Jesus. So we can laugh, not at them, but we can laugh with them because we are them. This is us. And on one level, this is giving us insight onto how we should be honest with one another. Here's how I'm struggling with my walk with Jesus. Here's how I have forgotten. Because beloved, how often do we forget about the wonders of Jesus? We have 66 books detailing to us God's goodness. And yet we wonder if God is good. We forget his power to heal. We forget his promises to us. We get caught up in chasing the things that moth and rust will destroy, and we don't seek first the kingdom of God. We get overwhelmed with storms and with troubles and heartache and depression and anxiety. And we forget that Jesus said, you are more valuable than sparrows. And our Father, he cares for them. How much more do you think he cares for you? And like the disciples, we can doubt Jesus' competence too. We've seen God come through in our lives. We've seen him come through for others time and time again. But then sometimes we get in a different setting. Settings matter, don't they? It's easy to affirm God's goodness here. But when you're in the hospital room, when you're in the lawyer's office, when you're at the police station, it gets harder. The disciples' setting matters too. It looks bleak. Our setting can look bleak. Time can pass. And we can think, this is going nowhere. This is hopeless. But remember, Jesus works wonders for weary sinners when they don't deserve it. All out of his compassion. And some of us probably even wonder, could Jesus even forgive me again for what I've done? Could, could he accept me? And the answer is always, yes, he can forgive you again. Just like, do you remember last week, just that, just that crumb from the master's table, just, that's enough. Just a little bit of bread from the master's table, just a crumb of bread. What is Jesus doing now? Feeding 4,000 plus bread. He already fed the children, the, the Jewish men and women, but now he's feeding the Gentiles, the quote, dogs, and he's giving them bread too. Jesus has a heart for sinners. Jesus can provide for us weary sinners because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So look with me now as the story keeps unfolding, as the drama unfolds, as the disciples leave this area with Jesus, they get into a boat. Look at what happens. Verse one, chapter 16. Cue the music. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached. Dun, dun, dun. Here come the villains. Here come the hostile ones. Here come the, quote, bad guys. And a confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees is going down. Verse one, and they tested him 
asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Show me a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. Well, here's what's so significant about this alliance now with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They have literally almost nothing in common. They're not on the same team. They are on different sides on their beliefs. They're on different sides in how they serve in the nation of Israel. These guys don't have a lot in common except their mutual hatred for Jesus. And they want to destroy him. And if you too are a faithful follower of Christ, you will find your common enemies coming together because you hate Jesus too. Because, not, oh Lord, not because you hate Jesus too. Because they hate Jesus. And they hate you too because of that. And they're willing to team up to tackle Jesus to test him. To test him. Show us a sign from heaven. Is it too soon for an Astros joke? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for signs. It's too soon. It's not what Matthew intended. They're testing him. The word here is, is more tempting. Um, they're tempting him. The word, it's also used in Matthew 4 when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. They're tempting him. Prove your legitimacy. Prove you really are who you say you are. They're tempting him, verify yourself. And Frederick Buhner is an amazing scholar in the Gospel of Matthew. He makes a stunning observation about temptations right here. There's two kinds of temptations Jesus faces and that we will face too. Two different kinds of temptations. Up temptations and down temptations. Up and, and down. Up temptations are the ones that they tempt you to take hold of pride. Show off. Prove yourself. Prove yourself in arrogance. Look, look more positive than you are. Down temptations are the obvious ones, um, the grimy ones, lust, envy, drunkenness, lying, uh, uh, approval of men, all, all that kind of, all, all those kinds of sins, falling into those, fear of man. Down temptations. Which is more difficult to withstand? The up temptations. Our culture loves up temptations. Our whole culture builds and lives off of the upward temptations. What did Satan tempt Adam and Eve with in the garden? A down temptation? Uh-uh. He did not say, eat this fruit and you'll be more like the devil. Eat this fruit and you'll be more like God. It was an up temptation. Boost yourself up. Where down temptations do, they bring you down. These boost yourself up. So they're tempting Jesus, prove yourself. Show everybody that you really are. Do a sign from heaven to prove you really are the Messiah. Look at what Jesus says to them. Verses two and three. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky's red. Verse three, and in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to predict the weather and the appearance of the sky. Jesus says, you guys are amateur meteorologists. And we got a meteorologist here. This is probably, these Pharisees are way off in predicting weather. Is this a reliable guide? We should not do this. Sky's red, okay. Jesus says, you guys love to try and predict the weather and plan accordingly. And who among us doesn't love to open the weather app? Every morning I hear my daughter as she's getting ready for school. Alexa, what's the weather like today? 
every day. And there's times when I've come in there, Natalie and I are in there, we're making coffee or making tea. And uh, we're like, man, I wonder if it's gonna be cold or if it's gonna rain today. Oh no, there's only like a 20% chance of rain. I wouldn't worry about it. Maybe, maybe some cloud cover, but nothing serious. I'm like, how do you know this, Alexa? I'm like, you're like, a, like an old woman already. Just checking the weather. Check, you have any news reports to give us? Anything going on in Jeopardy lately or anything? We love to try and see what's going on out there in the world and predict what's going on. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, you love to play and predict the weather, but you can't see what's happening right in front of you. The signs of the times, he says. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard that phrase because you've seen the books, signs of the times, 88 reason the world's gonna end in 1988. You hear a lot of sensational preaching goes on with signs of times and wars and rumors of wars and economic crisis in the Euro and a coin with a dragon on it and a Black Hawk helicopter spotted over the Middle East and whatever. Don't obsess over those things. And if you ever think you wanna email me an article with some Euro and connection to the Bible, just delete it. Don't, don't send me that. That's not what Jesus is talking about right here. Right here, when Jesus says the sign of the times, he is saying, you Pharisees, you don't see that me and my ministry, my healing, my teaching, my presence right in front of you is God's drama of redemption unfolding, but you don't see it. And he says in verse four, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. A suspicious and wandering eye wants more and wants more and is never satisfied. And Jesus says, you're gonna get a sign from heaven. Just one. The sign of Jonah, verse four. And he left them and went away. Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. My death and my resurrection from the dead. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and then puked up and then with a message of salvation for the Ninevites. Jesus says, just like I'm gonna be in the earth, I'm gonna come back out and a message of salvation will radiate around this world. Is that what you wanna hear? Earlier, I mean, we know now, but as you keep reading, we're gonna see Jesus is basically telling them, front-loading all of it, y'all are gonna have me crucified. I'm gonna be nailed to a cross to pay for the sins of others and I'll die, but that won't be the end of me. But that three days later, my body will surge back to life. My cerebral cortex will, will crank back on. Blood will fill my arteries again and that stone that, that sealed the tomb will roll back and I will walk out of that grave and everyone who believes that I did that for them, that's the sign. They will be saved. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. So church, we have to ask ourselves, is that enough for us too? Is that enough for you? It's spiritual adultery otherwise. Because when we're doubting God's care and when we're doubting God's love and when we're wondering if we, if God, if we could really trust God and that if we would say, God, if you would just do this, just do this thing for me, then I'll know that I can trust you and I walk with you. And I, Lord, you do that. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's the same thing as the Pharisees saying, show us a sign from heaven, Jesus. Then we'll believe in you. Then we'll walk with you. Then we'll follow you. It is the same wicked and adulterous generation that says, I don't want the sign of Jonah. I want a sign. 
I want you to do what I'm telling you to do, Lord. And Jesus says, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna fulfill the signs you're asking. I'm gonna give you the sign of Jonah. What does my crucifixion say to you? What does the empty tomb say to you? When you're wondering if we can really trust God, and Jesus says, look at the tomb. If you're wondering, is Christianity even real? Is, is this even believable? Is Jesus really the way? Jesus would say, look at the sign of Jonah. Look at that pile of, of blood at the bottom of the cross. What do you see? Do you see more than blood? Do you see salvation? Look at the stack of folded up grave clothes. What do you see? See, Pharisees want more proof that Jesus is Lord. Sadducees want to verify his kingship. And Jesus says, one sign. So here we go, church, listen. You're going to meet all kinds of people, people even here. They're going to reject Jesus and maybe you're doubting Jesus and wondering, is he real? Can we trust him? Maybe you have kids that they're just not sure about Christ. Well, here's what we need to know. It isn't the, as our culture thinks, the height of intelligence to reject Jesus. It's not open-mindedness, um, it, it's, it isn't liberal progressivism to doubt the story of Jesus. You know what it actually is? It is actually ancient Phariseeism. It's the epitome of empty religion. Atheism is just a religion. It's, it's a belief system. It has its own beliefs. It's, it's, it's a way of thinking. This is why when Stephen Hawking, this is incredible, Stephen Hawking famously said, heaven is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. That's how a lot of people think. When John Lennox, a British apologist, said back to him, atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. Beloved, is Jesus enough? Is his cross and empty tomb enough? Along with his healings, along with his miracles, along with his teachings, Jesus himself, the whole person, all that he is, all of his works. I mean, we have four books detailing everything he's done for us that we needed to know, testifying he is the savior. He can redeem your life. You can trust him and follow him because you're gonna hear all kinds of teachings. You're gonna be tempted to think all kinds of things. I, I want this. I, I wish this was true. I, I wanted this. I wish God would do this for me. I wish God would speak to me. On and on and on. Remember, Jesus is enough to assure you of God's love. And Jesus is enough to save your life. And Jesus is enough to change you forever and give you a future and a hope. When there's one last thing you have to remember, and Jesus wants his disciples to remember and he wants us to remember it. Remember, teachers are dangerous. Teachers are dangerous. So the text ends with the disciples back in the boat talking about how they forgot bread, which is hilarious. It's like when you go to the store for one thing. We had one thing to get and we forgot it. And you blame it on all the kids were so distracting and my phone and it was work and uh, they're probably blaming each other. There's 12 of us. Nobody thinks to grab bread. And here we are hungry again. And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, hears them talking and he uses a word picture to awaken their imagination, to wake them up. Verse six, look at it. Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven or the yeast, the, the bread of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse seven, of course, we didn't bring any bread. 
They probably looked at Jesus. Yeah, yeah. What is he talking about? Did you smuggle bread in? Did you get bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees? No, what is he talking about? And Jesus hears them. And Jesus connects the dots for them. Verse eight. Aware of this, Jesus said, oh, you little faiths. Why are you discussing among yourselves that you don't have any bread? Here's the amnesia. Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for 5,000, how I fed 5,000? And then he goes on. Don't you just remember what we just, what just happened like an hour ago? How you handed out bread to 4,000 plus people? You don't remember that? And that when I said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread, but it was about what they said. That it was their teaching and they get it. Verse 12, they, then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven and bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Teaching, they got it. So leaven, this is like, we don't use this. We buy our bread. A lot of us aren't making bread, but this is just a little bit, a little bit of this kind of yeast you, you put into the dough and it would spread throughout and help it rise. Jesus used this metaphor before positively, talking about the spread of the kingdom. But now he uses it negatively because there are other kingdoms in this world, other weapons, spiritual warfare, and teaching is a dangerous weapon. This is a dangerous thing you're listening to even now. A little bit of the teaching, a little bit of the ways of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it could spread throughout your life, throughout the community, throughout the church, and ruin it, Jesus is saying. It's like the stomach bug. I, I don't know what happens sometimes when the families get the stomach bug. Since we, we only have two kids, so if it does go through, it, it ends up, you know, goes through. Okay, it's done maybe a couple weeks. But I've seen some families, it's like, hey, I haven't seen you this year. I know, we had the stomach bug. It made three rounds through all of our 10 kids and our dog and our neighbor. It was just everything. Because things like that spread and it can be so dangerous and, and destroy so here's what I think we need to be cautious about. I think what Jesus is warning us about. First is, I think, the, the, way, the way the Pharisees teach, what brings about their teaching, their posture, how they approach others. What have we seen from the Pharisees consistently? They are automatically suspicious of everyone. Everyone. If they are in their camp, suspect. I remember growing up Southern Baptist, and if you weren't Southern Baptist, it was, you're probably not saved. That you're a heretic. We can't even trust you. And I've heard from other people who grew up in other denominations here at Redeemer, and they said the same thing. Yep, if you weren't that, if you weren't this, it's like they're probably not even Christians. And this is how the Pharisees think. If you aren't in our camp, we don't trust you. Constantly judging, constantly suspicious, hypercritical. That's how a lot of Christians act too. The Pharisees' approach was, you're a heretic, false teacher, till proven innocent. Everybody. Heretic till proven innocent. And I sadly, I, that is no way to live the Christian life. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be discerning. Of course you should be discerning. That's why Jesus says, beware. He doesn't say, who cares? Listen to everything. No, beware. But beware of always being aware. And let those who have ears to hear understand what Jesus means. A lot of people take this approach. If they don't like them, heretic. You disagree with them on a non-essential doctrine, heretic. There was, I've even heard stories about groups doing a certain study from a, a popular Bible teacher who's a, good, who's a good teacher. I don't agree with him on everything, but so what? He's a great teacher. And someone heard, oh, they're doing that study. Oh, heretic. 
Like, okay, you gotta chill. Not everybody's a heretic. Don't be like that. Their teaching was legalistic of the Pharisees. And we hear that a lot, legalism, legalism, legalism. There's another way to think about legalism. Legalism is also minimalism. Legalism, to be legalistic is also to be minimalistic, reducing, which sounds odd because they don't, Pharisees and legal, don't they add extra rules? Don't they add extra things, add stuff on the people? Yes, they do. But here's how it's minimalistic is that they minimize grace. Legalism is the minimization of Jesus and of grace, the belittling mercy. So I would encourage us to beware of anything that minimizes Jesus. That's why we said we want to make much of Jesus and lift him high. We want to be a church for us where the sign of Jonah is enough. We don't need the whiz-bang awes of American Christianity. We don't need to have some new catchy 2020 vision. Give me a break. How cheesy. We will never be as cool and as hip, as with it as the world. We don't need that. We have somebody who rose from the dead. What more could you need? We want to be a place, a children's ministry, a student ministry, a counseling ministry, a preaching ministry, small groups, where the sign of Jonah is enough. Where Jesus' victory over the grave gives you hope in your suffering. Where the sign of Jonah gives you hope in your parenting. Where the sign of Jonah, Jesus rising from the dead, gives you hope to stand against your your downward temptations and your upward temptations. Where your hope in evangelism really is the sign of Jonah and, and not some kind of here so I can weasel in the gospel conversation. And that the assurance of your life is the sign of Jonah that because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And that because he lives, you can face your past too. And that because he lives, you can face today. Fight against all Christian amnesia. Remember his cross forgiving your sins, paying for them in full. Remember his tomb, <laughs> empty for you. Fight off Christian amnesia that he lives for you now. And beloved, let's remember together that the bread that he breaks for the 5,000, for the 4,000, and now, the bread that he breaks is his body for our sins. Let's go to the Lord's Supper together. Let's, let's pray. King Jesus, help us. Help us to remember your goodness, to remember your grace, to remember your mercy, to remember that you are the Lord, not just of spiritual things, but you're the Lord of all things. Help us to remember to be truly spiritual is to care about whole people, the whole person. Lord, help us to remember that we are never truly down and out and defeated when we have you. You do work wonders for us. Some unexplainable things for us. Jesus, thank you that you're enough for us, that you've saved me from my sins. You've saved many of us from our sins and that your death and resurrection is enough for us to lift our heads up, to to give us an encouragement that, that can never be eroded. So help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name that we pray, Lord. Amen.